3: This is a little shout out before we get into today's show. Please think about Patreon to support all the shows in the District of Wonders. As you know, we are now a paying market and we need to keep afloat. The most important thing is to keep going. Please pop over to Patreon. Any little amount will, will certainly help keep these shows going. A regular subscription on Patreon is just the way forward to make sure we can put out these shows weekly pay the writers and just keep going well into the future we've been going 10 years there now thanks to all your loyal support please keep it open pop over to patreon
4: welcome to tales
5: Good evening, children of the night. We have a special episode for you this evening. As you may know, from our recent revisions to our submission guidelines, we don't really accept what would be called flash fiction currently. However, we've accepted a handful of flash fiction stories over the, well, years. And while talking to Philip and Scott about where I should be fitting the poetry and flash fiction in our episodes, the suggestion was made how about we just do one episode with all of it at once? It totals up to be right about the correct length for an episode, so I said, let's do it. Typically, we read the author bio before the story and the narrator bio after the story, but it will have a bit of the credits mixed up today, and although most of our submitting authors have included bios that are shorter than their fiction, some of our authors for the evening have longer bios that have been trimmed down a bit. And in the show notes, we'll include links to their websites for additional information. A notable one will be our final story, which comes from Justin Cawthorn, who you'll remember managed to help us get a Parsec Award. After our many stories, there will be another song from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy called Celebrating Halloween, so remember to stay tuned for that. So, let's get on to eight poems and ten, yes, ten pieces of flash fiction, Kicking our evening off will be two poems from Shannon Connor Winward, Moonsong, and Banshee. Shannon is a Delaware author of speculative poetry and fiction. Her writing has appeared in various genre and literary magazines and anthologies, including Idiomancer, Ilium, Strange Horizons, Flash Fiction Online, Pedestal Magazine, The Modern Writer, Pink Magazine, Jabberwocky, and... The Vestal Review. She is a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and the Science Fiction Poetry Association and a Risling Ward nominee.
6: They say I lure men to their deaths here, the enchanted wake to find that flesh is bone, my lips, my tongue, the gentle lap of lilies taking root in the throat as they drown. But they are lies, love, Do not believe them. I will kiss no other, not even in jest. What tales they invent, these arrant men, that a dangerous thing is a woman alone. This place used to hold me prisoner. I could not bring myself to leave when only I knew what was buried here. The world moved on. Young girls go missing, All the time. My rosy flesh grew rigid, and minnows ate my heart. I hated you, but time has a way of loosening regret. Like cloth and skin, slowly released, this cool mud is soothing to the bones. They say I haunt these shores, they hear my nightly keening, they say I search for you, but we both know this isn't true i wait i watch the owls sweep like phantoms i listen to the night breathing the aquatic chorus and out there i hear you pacing searching for me i had so much to say when you took away your hands but it broke like bubbles on the surface it was lost in your tears i know you are sorry as soon as it was done Your penance turns these marshes cold. Your winds reach like fingers to my shore. They grip, but close on nothing. For you died blind. I wish I could take your hand and give you peace. But sometimes the dead struggle. Heaven is too bright. They cling to the bottom, hide their faces in the silt. I keep trying to tell you. It's all right, love. Come back. But they won't listen, and they won't hear. Sometimes, when I am driving, and the moon hangs fat in the sky, like it did last night, I can sing a song to wake the dead. I don't know if it's me casting the spell, or the spell casting me, I just know that the song rises in me, like the ocean reaching for the sky. And I sing until my voice cracks and I pull into the driveway, and even after I stop singing, there's an echo. I don't know if it's something I did or something that happened to me, but I sang The Dead Awake last night, and I think they followed me home. Because now I have ghosts dancing inside me. Their steps are loud enough to wake the living, and I am shaken but i don't know what song to sing to send them back to sleep again
5: that was shannon connor winward's moon song and banshee as read by goldine agawa Goldine is a writer of fantasy and science fiction, an illustrator, painter, and cartoonist. Born Grace Goldine Ogawa in 1987 to a Japanese-American father and a Jewish Catholic mother, she spent the first few years of her life in the San Francisco Bay Area before her family relocated to a small town in the Sierra Nevada foothills of California in 1993. Though she has always been fascinated by stories, Much of her childhood was taken up with outdoor activities such as horseback riding, mountain biking, and whitewater rafting. We now have five poems from Marge Simon, one of which was written with Michael Fosberg. The first poem will actually be a rerun, as it aired way, way back in episode nine. But I figured we'll hear it again as part of her submitted collection. Marge is a former president of the Science Fiction Poetry Association. She edits the column, Blood and Spades, Poets of the Dark Side, for the monthly newsletter of the Horror Writers Association. Marge's poetry has received the Bram Stoker Award, the Reisling Award, the Dwarf Star Award, the Strange Horizons Readers Award, and the Grandmaster Award of the SFPA. She has also illustrated five Bram Stoker Award collections.
0: Music Smooth As Fog by Marge Simon The nurse thinks I'm asleep, but I never swallow her pills. I know how to get outside if I want to. Not very far, just on the ledge. And if I'm careful to shut the drapes and leave the window open... I like it there. The alley below is very old. A lair for scavengers. Their music is pale and wet, smooth as fog. I can smell the ocean underneath the oily fumes, watch the night things dance. Long and tall, their shadows rise almost to my ledge. I can pull their darkness over me as a veil. When I make my way back inside, there is blood on my tongue. Death wish, cloister in Newark. This death wish comes promising a soft inscription, delicate, savage. Once I had to do this thing with a serrated grapefruit spoon sitting on the toilet of his private room, reliving yesterday. I had to do this thing to release all memories, the smell of our sin, Father Boyd and me. I remember that the blood didn't equal the pain, but when I could stand I flushed away the signature. It was just a tumor, a side effect the means to an end. Now there is no choice and nothing to erase. Judgment day has come and gone. This death wish comes as fierce resurrection not unlike salvation. Yours or mine, Pretend that nothing's changed as I guide you past the broken doors, the lines of empty cars beneath a dull orange sky. We keep upwind of the smell until we reach the sea. You spread a tablecloth. I bring rocks to hold it down against the wind. You've prepared a mock picnic of conversation. Fictive wine and camembert. Sand sticks to your lips. You laugh a little too hard, and I kiss you. The dogs follow sunset. They travel in packs, some with collars. I've grown too weak to beat them off. Days ago I'd try, but even the small ones are gone. We brought the gun. One bullet left. Yours? Or mine? Armageddon. The Comedian. Saul is grilling chicken. It's the last of the charcoal. The chicken was a pet. Emma thought it was cute to have a chicken for a pet. She claimed she trained it to strut about and squawk when they entertained, but he knew it was just a stupid chicken. One of Emma's aqua scarves is draped around his neck. The sequins dance in the glow. A fragile armor. He hears her voice like a stoning. Don't touch yourself in front of the camera. Don't let them laugh through the end of a joke. Keep it moving. Make them excited. Make them squeal. The chicken is done. Flavor's not bad, considering it was an old hen. Saul wipes his mouth with the scarf. It comes away sticky. And now it's red instead of blue. Vaguely, he wonders if Emma would find this amusing beachhead by marge simon and michael fosberg we wade through the tide regroup on the shore the last enemy vaporized in that blind frenzy which holds no allegiance only desperation with none left in command we march as one our weapons useless Stick men, grown thin as nails More and more of us pour in to join our straggling company as if walking through a dream. All we need is a spark to wake us up. We stand at horizontals, sea and sand, wiping our eyes, waiting for a sign. Just ahead, the shores give way to green. Someone has brought a cello to the beach. She spreads her skirts and smiles yellow flowers in her hair, an air of long-forgotten grace, perhaps what we were fighting to preserve or not. Why should that matter now? She draws the bow across the strings, a common language, easy to identify. Debussy's sonata leaves us in tears. But the sad timbre of each note is too near the pitch of falling mortars, the moaning cries of gunshot friends. Her bow is a rifle poised to fire, the grassy knoll, a new delta to breach. There is a ringing in our ears that will not stop. Weapons drawn, we advance.
5: That was Marge Simons, Music Smooth as Fog, Deathwish, Cloister in Newark, Yours or Mine, Armageddon the Comedian, Beachhead, written with Michael Fosberg, as read by Veronica DeGegar. Veronica is a voiceover artist and author. She is a co-author, voice talent, and producer for the Secret World Chronicles podcast, and she writes and world builds for comic publisher Incubator Press. She is also an active voice at HG World in The Diary of Jill Woodbine, and she continues to read for authors in the realms of science fiction, fantasy, romance, and horror. Our next author is Kurt Levinskew an illustrator and graphic designer from Moultonboro, New Hampshire, now living in Vernon, Connecticut. He is well known for having the propensity and skill to emulate as well as create new art in any style, using any medium. He is also well known for his sense of humor, quick wit, and round-the-clock motivation to create new things. Let's hear his, There's a Man in the Floor.
7: There's a man in the floor. He dragged me away, under the boards of the house where I stay, under the pipes and down in the dirt, under the tree roots tugging my shirt, down through the tunnel pitch black and steep, under the bones where the dead now sleep. He dragged me along for what seemed like a day, so deep and so far from the house where I stay. My skin is all torn, shiny and red. The path now glistened in the spots where I've bled. Until Finale, reaching the end of the road, he sat me down in his tiny abode. There is no escape and no place to run. You'll stay here with me and have nothing but fun. I have games and snacks to last through time. To have fun and be happy could not be a crime. So why did you drag me? I started to say. So deep and so far from the house where I stay. He said, If not for the dragging, you'd run far away and show everyone the place where I stay. I'm ugly and scary and covered in boils. Tis why I live here amongst tree root and soils. No one could stand me unless they be took. I make flesh crawl with merely a look. But now you are mine. It's true, I have spoken. A smile on my face, and heart no more broken. When he was done, he patted my head. I looked in his eyes, smiled, and said, You had only to ask, and I would have come. There's nothing but abuse and neglect where I'm from. I've dreamed of this life most every day, From the locked dark room in the house where I stay. But you dragged me through dirt, sharp rocks and mud, My small body now relieved of its blood. Death now drags me tired and sore. I said to him then, There's a man in the floor.
5: That was Kurt Levinskew's There's a Man in the Floor, as read by Alice Frances Wickham. Alice Wickham is a modern-day vampire. At night, she explores the world of witches and demons under the flicker of candlelight. Her strange work has appeared in out-of-print magazines, most recent being Nazar Look, a bilingual journal for readers and writers in English, and Crimean Tatar. Alice's work has also appeared in Edge magazine. She holds a MA in creative writing from London. On to our flash fiction. Our first one comes from Nicole Steinmetz. Nicole lives in New Jersey, is a graduate of Ryder University, and a lover of books. She has been writing for years, but this may be a first for any sort of publication. The River was written in October of 2014. Let's hear her story, The River.
8: I followed the river in the dark woods one day, and I came upon two small girls. As I stepped closer to them, concerned for their well-being, I noticed their faces. They had no mouths, no lips to purse, no way to ask for help. The girls just stood there, staring silently at me. Their eyes were a bright green, bright green and full of hope. It seemed like the children had been waiting for me to come. Hello, I greeted. Forcing politeness in my voice, I did not want to show my fear. I wanted to turn and run. Yet, they were children, and I would never forgive myself if I abandoned them. "Uh, Are you lost? No, came a reply, and I jumped back. Are you? I took three more steps backwards as I spoke. No, I'm, I'm walking this path, you see. I pointed to the ground. Enjoying nature. We see. A chill settled into my bones just then, and I knew I was in trouble. Attempting to sound clever and brave. We always always are here. here. We We watch this river. river. We We wait for you. We prepare prepare for for him. him. Him? Just then I could hear it, a low, grunting sound. A slow shuffle through piles of dead leaves. I looked behind the two young girls and gasped when I saw two eyes of red. I woke up then, in my comfortable bed, my dog laying at my feet. She lifted her head up at my sudden awakening, then jumped off the bed, eager for her breakfast. I sighed. It was only a nightmare. Glad I got up and started my day. Sitting on my deck, I watched the river that flows through my backyard. I walked that river path every day for fresh air and exercise. I wondered if I should skip my walk today, but realized that was silly. I only had a bad dream. I shouldn't stop what I always do. A couple of hours later, I walked along the path, dead leaves crunching underneath my feet. I followed the river as I always do and stopped suddenly when I noticed that I was no longer alone in the woods. There were two little girls standing in front of me. They had no mouths, yet their green eyes blazed with hope. My heart jumped into my throat then it stopped beating altogether.
5: That was Nicole Steinmetz's The River, as read by Kashik Narasimhan. Kashik is a management consultant by day and a writer by night with a keen interest in psychedelics and role-playing video games. Now, J. Robert King is going to serve up the meat of our flash fiction. Over the years, he has submitted stories, and you're going to hear them now. Over the course of his 20 years as a published novelist and short story writer, J. Robert King has written many tales to terrify. In turn, his various publishers have often sent him royalty letters to terrify, or at least to annoy. J. Robert King's stories in this podcast were first published in Humors, Confessions of an Antidepressant Eater. His first three stories are The Kneeling and Dahmer and Da Vinci, as read by our editor Scott Silk. The fourth and fifth stories will be Spine and Eagle, as read by Drew Sabastini.
9: "'I should
10: not have picked that scab,' he thought, as he looked at the weepy, nickel-sized sore just to the right of his kneecap. Next moment, the cut opened itself up, revealing a small blue eye that blinked once to cleanse itself of the blood streaks. "'I definitely should not have picked that scab,' Only then did he notice the other, smaller pockmark to the left of his kneecap. No doubt that would form into another eye, and the man who is taking shape on his lower leg would make the kneecap itself into a deronte-like nose. Would the mouth form on its own, or would it occur when he accidentally barked that knee against an edge of glass or metal and sliced the skin, revealing the teeth within? However it would happen, he decided to avoid picking scabs and gashing knees, Wondering all the while what sort of creature he was bringing into the world. Imagine Dahmer and Da Vinci as brothers. Infamous depravity and famous genius emergent from the same womb. Imagine them coming from the same madness. For both men in their time dissected humans. Both drew out organs for special purposes. Imagine the mother of them and wonder which she would love better. The mother of Dahmer surely loved him, as we have seen on the news, though we know little of da Vinci's mother. Often, a monster is easier to put up with than a genius. Imagine a summer night. The two teenage brothers lay discontented upon their straw pallets after long days in their father's fields, their delicate hands and discriminating eyes wasted upon barley and hogs all day. When the final panting breaths of labor had calmed and the last hot sweat had rolled down their brows before it turned chill and made them draw up their tattered covers, there would be a conversation. Dahmer, in his quiet, clear voice, would say, Brother, I know we are made for something more than this, something that will bring us fame or infamy. Da Vinci, now pulling up his cover, would say something in Italian. Dahmer, perhaps in the lower bunk, would look up and say, What? I can't understand Italian. Da Vinci would say something in French, or one of the other languages he knew backward and forward, but not in American English. Dahmer, feeling inferior to his brother, both because of the lower bunk and because he didn't understand these languages forward, let alone backward, would wave his hand in the air and say, Oh, forget it, and roll over. Da Vinci would say something else in Italian. Dahmer would get up knock his head in with a hammer, and eat him.
2: It was on that ancient and grandma-smelling mattress, so old that its tick was likely the canvas from a sail or a prairie schooner, that he felt his spine for the first time. Lying in one trough of that rag-filled pallet, he sensed a sudden tension in his back in the bony segments, and the snake of muscle and nerve that surrounded and infused them. The whole spinal column seemed to be pulling loose of the flesh around it, like a gerbil's tail slipping off suddenly in the hand of its captor. He could feel his spine. It lay like a millipede within him, curved and chitinous with its million neural legs spreading hair-like through his flesh. In such a state, he knew the danger of falling asleep, but the millipede's venom was too strong, and he drifted. As he sank slowly, he felt the neural legs pulling free of their myelin sheaths, bunching about the anthropotic backbone and squirming toward the tailbone. He tried to wake himself to stop the event, but the coccyx had already wheedled its triangular head through the flesh between his gluteals. In another wet moment, the spine was slithering free, and the man could only watch it emerge. Watch the inevitable trough-like depression form in his numb flesh watched the creature lie in panting half-concealment between his gory legs before it slid onto the floor and wormed its way up the wall to the open window. It scratched at the screen, bone against rusted steel mesh, until a hole the size of a fist was made, and then it slid out into the night. It wasn't oblivion, he sought. A quick slash to the wrists would have brought that more easily. Razors have a mercy that the macerating, masticating teeth of chainsaws do not. It was elevation. Escape. The right leg had been the harder of the two. It was the first one, and the cork he'd gotten for his femoral artery shot across the room behind a spray of blood. He had to jam a finger in it and hop to get the cork. By the time of the left leg, the right was healed in a fleshy stump, like that of a celery plant. The left was considerably easier. He'd borrowed a hot plate from his old college roommate and got it sizzling on the chair beside him before taking the leg off. A snatch of the plate and a compression and the gurgling blood was boiling and steaming for half a minute before the cauterizing was done. The burns made the stump swell a bit, but in mere months, he was ambling about the apartment on hands and rump. He tried it then. Still was too heavy, as he feared he might be. The next surgery had especial difficulties. The point was to cut away about 20 pounds by sawing off the pelvic section, but leaving at least one kidney, and enough of a descending colon that he could still digest. He studied, mapped his body with permanent markers, bought goggles to prevent being blinded by the inevitable flying fragments of pelvis. On the day, the cut was much messier than he’d imagined, and halfway through, Hitting the spine, he convulsed in the bathtub for some minutes, the saw sparking on the porcelain beneath him until he came back to himself and finished the job. This cut healed more slowly, and there was infection. He had to break down and hire a nurse. Even with her ministrations, the colon didn't work out as he had planned and a catheter had to be inserted in the remaining left ureter. He lost weight, of course, beyond the twenty-some pounds of the pelvic girdle, but that would only help. When he was finally well, fitted out in a wheelchair and liberated from the fussing nurse, he discovered that what remained of him, head, shoulders, arms, hands, chest, Weighed a mere 53 pounds. Perfect. Leaving the wheelchair behind, he locomoted on hands and ribs to the garage, slid the door up as high as he could, and pulled out the wings. He strapped them on, and after flapping for mere moments, lifted into the sky and flew away.
5: That was J. Robert King's The Kneeling and Dahmer and Da Vinci, as read by Scott Silk, and Spine and Eagle, as read by Drew Sebastini. Scott Silk is, of course, Tales to Terrify's own editor. Scott Silk spends long days staring into the dark heart of corporations and is forbidden to speak about what he sees there. In his spare time, his interests include reading, writing, urban gardening, traveling, foreign cuisine, tattoos, social justice, cartoons, growing his hair out, and not wearing pants. Originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now lives in Brooklyn with his boyfriend, two cats, and a collection of houseplants. He can sometimes be found babbling about speculative fiction and other interests on Twitter, at ScottSilk13. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen wastes of the Canadian prairies, and Drew Sebastini has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tail since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscle as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada, and his wife, son, and a menagerie of furry creatures. Thank you both. Our next piece of flash fiction comes to us from Gina X. Grant. She writes ingenious plot lines with twists, turns, and sometimes magic. She is represented by Rosemary Stimola, the agent who also represents the Hunger Games series Gina's Reluctant Reaper trilogy is available from Simon Schuster's Pocket Star imprint. Story, Supplies Attack.
11: The morning of my 25th birthday, I dragged myself into the office feeling hungover and half-dead. If I'd known I'd be a lot more dead by the end of the day, I probably would have called in sick. Or at least slept in. I downed a bunch of aspirin, vowing to either give up drinking or get a lot more practice. The aspirin kicked in by mid-morning, and after a half-dozen cups of coffee I felt nearly human again, and was actually making headway on a new business proposal. A sudden hissing distracted me, and a horrible stench like rotten eggs wafted into the room. Goddamn plumbing! I reached for the phone to call building maintenance and give him hell, when a flash of movement caught my eye. I froze, as my stapler reared up and roared, flaring its metal flanges at me. Then my office door slammed shut, the locked steel tongue snicking into place. Sweat painted an icy trail down my back. To hell with fight or flight. I'd gone for option three of these F words. Freeze. It was like I was crazy glued to the chair. The key word here being crazy. The stapler drew back its steel lips and hissed again, its body a knot of metal muscle tensed to spring. A staple clicked into place, the two chisel-edged prongs glinting in the fluorescent light. Blindingly fast, the stapler slashed twin lines across the back of my hand embedding a staple deep in my flesh. Pain turned terror to fury. I backhanded the stapler into the wall before it could strike a second time. The stapler rebounded, leaving a gray dent in the dry wall, and fell lifeless to the coffee-stained carpet. Grateful for support as my knees wobbled, I sucked in huge gulps of oxygen. And I peered around my office, wary of other threats from seemingly harmless office supplies. The pencil might put my eye out. The eraser could choke me to death. Even my calculator could no longer be counted on.
5: That was Gina X. Grant's Supplies Attack, as read by Rob Matheny. Rob is a producer, narrator, and voice actor, blogger, writer, and podcaster from the land of food carts, microbrews, and voodoo donuts, Portland, Oregon. As co-host of the Grim Tidings podcast, Rob delivers a weekly dose of Grimdark to the masses. But his podcasting propagation doesn't stop there. Nay, he's also an assistant producer for the Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing podcast. Rob is a husband and father of four, rabid book nerd, metalhead, geek culture enthusiast, skilled Wheel of Fortune player, and social media fiend now we come to Rick McKiston, a 46-year-old father of two who loves anything horror-related. He has written well over 300 publications so far. He has written several anthologies, one book of novellas, and edited an anthology of Michigan authors. He is also a guest author each year at Memphis Junior High School and is currently working on more short stories than he cares to admit. And now Rick McKiston's A Late Night Visitor. The tall man made sure there was no one else around, and then slipped into the room. He was sure to leave the door open a crack to ease his departure. Once inside, he pulled out a small flashlight from his pocket and clicked it on. The beam of light cut into the darkness. On the far side of the room was another door, a huge stainless steel thing with a small rectangular window embedded in it at eye level. The man walked with purpose up to the door and shone his flashlight into the glass. Inside were nearly three dozen still forms, each lying on a gurney and covered in a black plastic sheet. Pairs of pale feet stuck out from each table and sported a toe tag fastened to the big toe of one foot. With a strong but cautiously quiet effort, the man pulled on the door's latch and swung the last barrier between himself and his destiny open. Instantly, a biting chill swept over him. He stepped inside. Terry lashed out at the snarling orc with skilled ferocity, his blade, a curved iron and gold masterpiece handed down to him from his father's father, sliced through the tough hide of the beast with great ease, efficiently cleaving it down the middle, The orc collapsed into a rancid heap. Terry turned the page. The high fantasy novel was a good one. Part four in a long series, and he looked forward to delving into the remaining books. He had a habit of substituting himself in place of the lead character. It was something he'd done since he was a kid. He began to read the next passage. Movement on one of the monitors caught his attention. Terry set his book down and glared at the screen. Through the grainy black and white image he was able to see a figure, a tall dark man dressed in a long overcoat stealthily exit the morgue. Terry was both startled and amazed. He knew there shouldn't be anyone in that wing of the building without checking in with him first. In fact, how anyone would have gotten past him without him noticing was even a greater mystery. A sharp chill ran up and down his spine. He watched, dumbfounded at the brazen audacity of the intruder, as the man nonchalantly strolled down the corridor. The overhead lights failed to reveal his identity, instead cloaking his face in shadows. Terry jumped to his feet. He fumbled for the phone and after dialing his superiors waited anxiously for someone to answer. He was getting a bad feeling about what was happening, a very bad feeling. When the line went dead Terry realized that his only alternative was to investigate. He set the receiver back on its base, unclipped his nightstick from his belt and readied his flashlight. He flipped it on just to make sure it worked and steadied his nerves with a few deep breaths. All right, let's do this. The monitors all went blank at that moment, reverting back to dark screens. Fear began to undermine Terry's thoughts. He was afraid and he knew it, but one thing his dad taught him was to use fear as a tool. Make it work for you, his father had told him when he was a boy. Use it to your advantage. Never before had the walk from his security desk to the elevator seemed so long. Terry took each step carefully, slowly, with his eyes wide and his mind alert. He wasn't surprised when he punched the up button for the elevators, and nothing happened. Okay, nothing seems to be working. I can't call for help, and there's somebody in the building who shouldn't be here. So what are you going to do? A sound, distant and familiar, echoed across the room. Footsteps? The elevator door stood before Terry like two huge blocks of polished granite, solid and unmoving. He realized that whatever was approaching him was not using the elevator, nor would he be able to, so he abandoned the idea and darted behind a row of decorative trees. The plastic leaves and branches gave him adequate cover. As the footsteps drew closer, Terry held his breath. Fear was paralyzing him, overruling any professional duty he had and rendering him as not much more than a cowering child. And then he saw him. The dark figure emerged from the hallway. It wore a long black overcoat and its face was obscured by shadow. A cold aura surrounded it. Terry watched the man stroll into the main lobby. The man paused near the security desk. He glanced around looking for any sign of the guards who would be on duty and seeing nobody resumed his stroll towards the front door. At that moment Terry wanted nothing more than the strange man to leave, to walk out of the building and his life forever. He could go check the rest of the building to make sure there was no damage done, and if there wasn't, nobody would be the wiser. The recording would be ignored, as it usually was, and he would make sure of it just to be safe. He didn't like being dishonest, not to mention risking his job, but something about the intruder unsettled him to the point of fearing for his life. And besides, even if he did report it, who would believe him? The man stopped at the front door. He turned around in a painfully slow movement and looked directly at the caps of artificial trees where Terry was hiding. For the first time, Terry could see his face. Gleaming bone curled into a devilish and impossible grin. Instead of eyes, there were hollow black pits, deep empty chasms that radiated hopelessness and despair, and a horrible cracking noise emanated from the thing. It sounded like dead twigs snapping. Terry fell back against the wall. He became aware of frenzied movement all around him then and looked around feverishly. The dead were stumbling down the hallway. There were dozens of them, men, women, and even a few children. All were chalk white and stark naked except for toe tags on their feet that dragged along the ground with each mindless step they took. Their bloodless fingers clenched in anticipation. Terry tried to get up and run but found he couldn't move. His limbs were flaccid and yet stiff. He could move his hands and his head, but not his arms or legs. And when he looked back at the intruder by the front door, he understood why. The thing held an outstretched arm in his direction. Its horrible grimace was unchanged, which in a way made it even more frightening. A faint greenish glow surrounded its skeletal hand. The corpses fell on Terry, and as he was catapulted into oblivion, he heard the thing by the door utter three words and imparted the fate of the planet to him, three words that had more meaning than any words ever spoken. It has begun. That was Rick McKiston's elate.
2: Post your free job on
5: LinkedIn.com slash people today. Night Visitor as read by me. Link to my homepage is in the show notes. Let's listen to a story from Han Adcock. Han Adcock is a writer of short stories, short long stories, and poetry, ranging from the humorous to the weird. She lurks in a strange corner of Lincolnshire willfully mixing horror with the funny and other crimes against nature. She has previously appeared in Penumbra, Poetic Diversity, and an anthology of apocalyptic fiction, Reflections of the End. Her author page is at www.facebook.com weird weirdstories. That's W-Y-R-D stories. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. And now, Han Adcock's Hunger. Joseph lies awake in the dark,
9: wondering. He doesn't want to sleep. Incessant noises come from his stomach. It's too dark for him to see. His limbs are too limp with fatigue for him to get up and go downstairs to get something to eat. He doesn't want to disturb his parents either. Joseph keeps jerking his eyes open every time they droop. Occasionally, he sinks into R.E.M. sleep and then jumps fully awake, breathless, heart skittering, not remembering his dreams. The hours roll on and the clock out on the landing strikes midnight, disrespectfully exploding the silence. As the last chime dies, Joseph lies rigid as a poker, straining his ears. He tells himself it's all his imagination, but Joseph is sure he heard or sensed, something shift in the darkness at the foot of his bed, something big. His stomach is growling now. It feels like something is prodding at him from the inside, almost hesitantly, like a visitor tapping at the door of a long-lost friend. The thing at the foot of the bed moves, and Joseph feels a sickening stab of horror when it growls back in reply. His mind races. He tries to understand. Maybe it's an echo, even though the acoustics in his bedroom aren't good enough to produce an echo. Light pressure on the mattress on either side of him. The thing prowls onto the bed. Joseph is frozen. In his mind's eye, he can see a grotesque creature hanging over his inert body on all fours. He is tempted to reach out a hand and check he's not deluding himself but his arm won't move. What was it his friend Alec told him last week? The thing about feeling a creature sitting on your chest at night giving you nightmares? He wonders if this is a form of sleep paralysis. Alec. Joseph remembers what happened at Alec's house. Alec is the sort of person who would keep a bit of sea glass he'd found on a day in Brighton, for example and then elaborate on how a witch gave it to him as a talisman to ward off evil spirits. Joseph always ends up half-believing him. It was Alec who had dared Joseph to eat the egg. It wasn't the first stupid thing they had done together, but Joseph had had doubts about the dare even then. This, Alec had said, setting a round white egg on his desk in his room, comes from a demon. Joseph had snorted. (laughs) Yeah, right. He had suspected it was just a normal egg from a bird he didn't know about. Alec lived with his grandmother, and she had eccentric tastes, especially in food. You are what you eat, she'd squawk, usually after Alec made an inane remark about her cooking. So, when Alec dared him to eat the egg, Joseph did. Raw. One swallow, and it was gone. It was that small. He didn't want to risk looking like a wimp. Almost immediately afterward, he'd regretted eating it. He had to go home, feeling like he had drunk too much, even though he hadn't drunk anything at Alex, in case his parents found out and grounded him. He didn't tell them about the dare, and feeling fine the next day, he pushed it out of his mind. Until now. Joseph lies awake in the dark, listening. There's no movement from the presence above him, but he knows it's still there. He can smell its breath, hot and coppery, like blood mixed with something rotting. Joseph isn't hungry anymore. He feels like he just swallowed a rock. He doesn't move. His stomach growls feebly. A low growl answers back from the space above the bed. His nerves flood with ice. Cold sweat prickles on his forehead. Blood rushes to his head, a roaring rushes in his ears. The weight in his stomach is moving, slithering, upward, kicking all the way, trapped. Help! Joseph's voice is like dry leaves on the wind, and nobody replies. Joseph lies awake in the dark, panicking. How did the huge animal get in? It wasn't there when he went to bed. There could still be a chance that he's just dreaming. He is a rational boy and he refuses to think of the thing as a monster. It's obviously a wild animal of some kind. As to the feeling in his stomach, maybe it's down to indigestion. Or maybe he's delirious with a fever, hallucinating. Then he remembers he left the bedroom window open before coming to bed. He didn't turn on any of the lights before getting ready to sleep. He should have shut the window. Joseph's stomach howls, and the weight inside starts pummeling faster and faster, struggling inexorably up his throat. He feels sick and gags. The weight is stuck between his ribcage. Frantic, he chokes. Gas heaves. Pins and needles flow in his hands and feet. The room whirls. He feels dizzy. The creature above him howls back. Joseph lies in the dark, hyperventilating. He would scream, but his voice isn't working. He can't get the breath to use it. One final wail, a call from his insides, and the animal hunched over him swipes at Joseph's belly with sharp, cold talons. No pain yet, but Joseph can tell he's bleeding Warm fluid seeps out from the wound, soaking into his pajamas. The creature reaches in and lifts the weight out. A bizarre couple of seconds. He feels like he's being turned inside out and then shakes himself. His mother is waiting for him, anxious for them to get to safety before the sun rises. He can't quite remember how he got here and he has no name, but he leaves the house through the window with his mother. The empty shell of a young man lies discarded in the darkness, not doing anything
5: at all. That was Han Adcock's Hunger, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins was born in California and grew up in and around the western U.S., he currently resides in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, where he works as a voice artist primarily focused on audiobooks. He's probably best known for being the voice of the Glenn and Tyler series of audiobooks, written by J.B. Sanders. If you're in the Denver area in March, you can find him on stage with Magic Moments, a nonprofit theater group that brings theater professionals and people with special needs together to create an original show each year. You can hire Brian to narrate your next audiobook at thevoicesinmyhead.com. Our next story comes from Sandra Wickham. Sandra's short stories, including this one, having appeared in Evolve, Vampires of the New Undead, Evolve, Vampires of the Future Undead, Chronicles of the Order, Crossed Genres Magazine, Locothology, The Urban Green Man, Tales from the Archives, and Luna Station Quarterly. She blogs about writing with the Ink Punks, is the fitness nerd columnist for the Functional Nerds, and slush reads for Lightspeed magazine. Let's give a listen to Sandra Wickham's "Mama's Boy.
4: I said, stay back, Christopher, she said, one hand on her swollen belly, the other holding the dinner knife in front of her. He smiled, the same smile he had used to win her heart many years ago the same smile she knew now to be an illusion. "'Ruthie,' he said, hands outstretched in a gesture of peace. "'You really are amazing. That is why I picked you.' Sweat soaked her forehead, and ran under her arms as labour pains shot through her like lightning bolts. She stumbled slightly, and fought to take deep, slow breath. She raised the knife higher as he continued to approach. She had to stop this child from being born.' "'I said, stay back, Christopher!' Christopher was not its real name, only part of the human façade she had fallen for. She had been fooled all through their courtship at university, a three-year marriage and the first eight months of her pregnancy. Then she woke up a prisoner here, and he had revealed his true form. He smiled again, as she doubled over from another contraction. "'There is no point in fighting it, Ruthie. My son will be born, with or without your cooperation.' As soon as she could straighten up, she grabbed a knife with both hands and turned the tip of the blade towards her belly. It may only be a table knife, but she hoped with enough force she could kill herself, the baby, or both. Christopher laughed again, but stopped moving forward. "'It would take more than that to kill my son. He would survive, but you might not. We cannot have you dying yet. After all—' His smile widened. "'My son will need to feed when he arrives.' Ruth cursed him, but lowered the knife. Part of her wanted to have this child. She had spent nine months in anticipation of his arrival, reading, singing, and talking to him. She backed up and sat down on the bed. Christopher was at her side and wrenched the knife from her hands before the bed could finish sinking under her weight. Another contraction hit, worse than the others. Let me help you, he said as he lifted her legs up onto the bed and eased her back against the pillows. "'This isn't exactly how I pictured it,' she said as she caught her breath again. He smiled, and for a moment Ruth thought they could have been any ordinary couple expecting their first child. The thought didn't last. The repulsive image of what he truly was brought a bile to her mouth. "'I will get the midwife,' he said as he wiped her forehead with a cloth. "'It will all be over soon.' Left alone, she tried to catch her breath and clear her thoughts. Out of habit, she rubbed her stomach, and sang softly to her unborn child. There was no denying it. This baby was going to come, and she could not stop it. She looked around the room for anything she could use as a weapon. But could she really kill her own child? If it came out flailing, with horns and claws, it might not be too difficult. Still, half of it, her half, would be human. She would rather kill Christopher. No part of him was human." but by the time the door opened and the midwife entered, Ruth hadn't found anything she could use as a weapon. "'Help me!' Ruth whispered to the woman checking her pulse. The midwife's expression did not change, and she did not speak. "'You must help me! This child—' She gasped as another wave of pain struck. "'This child cannot survive!' The midwife ignored her, and Ruth cursed again as the door opened and Christopher entered the room. "'How is she doing?' "'It will not be long now, master,' the midwife replied. Ruth only had time to shoot the midwife a contemptuous look as another wave of pain grabbed her attention. Hours passed, and Ruth focused only on surviving through each round of pain, growling at the midwife's incessant instructions. Drawing on all her hatred for Christopher and the universe for allowing this to happen, with one enormous push, she forced a half-monster out of her. As she descended into darkness, Ruth heard the child's first cries. She woke to find Christopher in the rocking chair, the baby wrapped in a blanket her mother knitted. The midwife was gone. Christopher smiled and brought the child to the bed. Ruth heard a young voice inside her head, disjointed and violent. As Christopher held the baby out for her to see, she was relieved that the infant looked entirely human, although she knew he wasn't. To her surprise, he was as large and developed as six months old. Christopher nodded, as if reading her thoughts. "He will grow quite rapidly," he said. "That is why he needs to feed, often and a lot." Again ruth heard her child in her head, angry and hungry. This time she tried to communicate back, reaching out to him with her mind and heart. "Could I just hold him for a moment?" she asked. Christopher hesitated, before lowering the baby into her arms. "'You have been an excellent companion these years,' he said, as if she should find comfort in that. "'It is a shame it must end his way. But this is our tradition.' "'Traditions can be broken,' Ruth said, then began to sing softly to the baby. He locked his eyes on hers as she sang. "'You must understand,' Christopher continued. "'It has been this way for centuries. The bloodline is passed to the sun.' The human mother must be destroyed. Ruth stopped singing. Fed to the child, you mean? The baby squirmed and fussed until she began to sing again. Then he calmed and smiled up at her. She smiled back and hid her shock as she heard her child inside her head communicate its intentions. "'It is how it must be,' Christopher said, and he took the baby from her. He held the infant up in front of him, the perfect picture of a proud father.' Ruth turned away at the first murderous shriek from her child. She did not want to see her baby in its monster form, but when Christopher's screams filled the room, she forced herself to look. Both had now transformed. The child had attached its fangs to its father's throat. The monster that was Christopher crumbled to the floor as blood gushed from his wounds. Ruth had to turn away again as her monster child ripped out its father's throat, then continued to tear off and consume chunks of flesh— When the sounds of feasting finally stopped, Ruth reached down to pick up her son. As she did, its tail retracted, the fangs gave way to a toothless grin, and the claws changed to little human fingernails. She scooped him up and headed for the door. She glanced up and down the corridor. "'Still hungry, darling?' She cooed at her son. He looked up at her, and from the intensified glow of his red eyes, she knew that he was. "'Let's see if we can't find that midwife then, shall we?' Her son gurgled in delight as they headed down the hallway together.
5: That was Sandra Wickham's Mama's Boy, as read by Kristen Gearlo. Kristen is a 29-year-old Norwegian who's been recording and editing for LibriVox since 2011. She's an educated librarian who is currently working on her first novel, though she runs her own company at the moment. You can find her other narration works on her LibriVox page, LibriVox.org slash reader slash 6548 link, of course, will be in the show notes. And I've saved Justin Cawthorne's story for last. I've linked Justin's web page in the show notes, but the most important thing you need to know, that Ron John's read of Justin Cawthorne's Graves Landed Tales to Terrify, a Parsec Award. Let's give a listen to Justin Cawthorne's Strawberries. I never thought the world could end like
12: this. I say that without any doubt. If anyone had asked me, at any time, how the world was going to end, this wouldn't have been anywhere on my list. It all started yesterday, at least for us it did, after Susie got back from the supermarket. She's my sister. By the way, I've shared a house with her and Chrissy since last year. They needed a third person to cover the rent for a place they were looking at, and I ended up being that person. Of course, the reason I ended up being that person was because I fancied Chrissy. But it was only after signing the contract that I realised exactly why Susie and Chrissy were looking to live together. Let's just say it's a two bedroom house and leave it at that. So, as I was saying, Susie had just returned from the supermarket. It was a warm, sunny, perfect weekend, and we had agreed there was no better way to spend it than in the garden, stuffing ourselves with whatever fine foods, wines and other treats our meagre spare cash could afford. What we ended up with was white wine, Doritos, hummus and a selection pack of miniature cheeses. Not the most refined selection, but enough to lull us into a false sense of sophistication. Oh, and strawberries. Nearly didn't come back with those, Susie told us, as we unpacked the bags. Strawberries? Chrissie asked. Didn't even know you liked strawberries. Susie nodded. Oh, sure, yeah, well, sometimes. They're okay, whatever, thought they'd be nice. Anyway... They were on special. Everyone was buying them, so I thought I'd better get in there. I remember looking at the strawberries. It seems to me now as if I had a chance to get rid of them, as though my subconscious was urging me to throw them out, but I simply wasn't listening hard enough. In truth, all I was doing was trying to decide whether to put them in the fridge or leave them out. Yeah, leave those out, Susie instructed, reading my mind. "'We'll eat them now.' "'So was that the last pack?' Chrissy asked. "'Say what?' "'You said you almost didn't get them. "'Had they run out?' "'Susie shook her head. "'Not even close. "'They had piles of the things. "'No, this old fruit of a woman came up to me after I'd paid "'and asked if she could have them.' "'For free?' I asked. "'Exactly,' Susie explained. "'She wanted me to give her the strawberries. "'Nothing else, mind, just the strawberries.' She knew I had some. I suppose she must have been watching me at the checkout. Chrissy couldn't work it out. I could tell by her face. There tended to be a lot of things she couldn't work out. Why? Why didn't she just buy her own? No money. She told me she couldn't afford to buy any more strawberries. But she had to have some. And I mean, she had to have them. She wasn't kidding. Do you think strawberries are like crack when you're old and crazy? Did you tell her to get bent? Chrissy asked. Should have. Funny thing is, I almost gave her the stupid things. She looked so sad and desperate, like her world was going to fall apart if she didn't get these strawberries. And then... She tailed off, staring intently at the packet of strawberries. Then what? I finally prompted. Susie frowned. It's like she knew what I was thinking, and... She changed. Soon as I thought maybe I'd just give her the strawberries, she stopped looking like a total loser and started to look, I don't know, sort of hungry. She stopped looking at me and just started staring at the bag. It was like she couldn't wait for me to get the strawberries out so she could grab them and run off. She was sort of a scary bitch by then. I'm not making it up. Chrissy was still looking puzzled. So how did you get rid of her? I pointed back in the shop, showed her the big stack of strawberries piled up in there, and told her they had plenty left. After that, she wandered off like I didn't even exist anymore. Freak. Chrissy shrugged. are only strawberries. Ten minutes later, we were in the garden. The first bottle of wine was open, and already well on its way to being empty. The hummus was being dipped into... The miniature cheeses were doing whatever miniature cheeses do, and the strawberries were waiting. Susie picked one out and took the first bite. Oh! She exclaimed loudly. What? I asked. Is it bad? Bad? No way! It's the most fucking delicious strawberry I've ever had in my life! Before she could pause to take another breath, she stuffed the rest of the fruit in her mouth and swallowed it down. quickly. She grabbed another. Then Chrissy reached into the bowl. I saw Susie's eyes flash over to her, and she hesitated. Thought I'd better try one before you eat them all, yeah? Susie smiled, perhaps a little too anxiously. Yeah, of course. Better have one while you still can, eh? I watched them both as Chrissy popped the strawberry in her mouth and as Susie, in turn, watched her. Like any couple, they bickered from time to time, but everything was always out in the open with them. I don't really think Susie had the patience for secrecy, and Chrissy certainly didn't have the guile. Now it seemed that Susie was leaving something unsaid, which wasn't like her. I even started to wonder if there was something going on with the two of them that I didn't know about. Oh, wow, Chrissy squealed as she tasted the strawberry. Hey, you should totally try one of these, she said to me. I shook my head. You have them. I'm not all that keen on strawberries. No problem. All the more for us. As the two of them carried on eating, I disappeared inside to see if our kitchen could offer up any further snacks. I was happy to miss out on the strawberries. They really weren't my kind of thing anyway, and as long as there was still plenty of cheese and hummus to go around I wasn't going to complain. True. It was a combination that wasn't going to make me anyone's best friend, but wasn't like I was about to score with my present company anyway. ''Hey!'' I heard Susie shouting. I looked out the window and saw her angrily waving the empty bowl in Chrissy's face. ''Eat the last one, why don't you?'' Chrissy was flinching. ''I... no, you ate the last one, I'm sure you did. There was one left in the bowl. I thought you left that one for me.'' Left it for you? Oh, dream on, why don't you? I figured this was the sort of argument I should cut in on, but I didn't much like the way Susie was brandishing that bowl, so I quickly popped my head back into the garden. Tell you what, why don't I just go and buy some more? Susie's eyes didn't even move away from Chrissy. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I walked over and shakily poured the rest of the wine into their glasses. ''Okay then,'' I said, nodding. ''So you two sit down and have some more wine, chill out, and I'll be back with more strawberries before you even notice.'' ''Get two punnets,'' Susie ordered. ''Reckon that'll be enough for you?'' Chrissie retorted smartly. ''I'll buy whatever's left,'' I told them as I hurried off to the car. Five minutes later, I pulled up at the supermarket. If I hadn't been so unnerved by the bizarre showdown in our garden, I might have noticed the police car parked outside or the small crowd of random people gathered listlessly near the entrance. As it happened, I only thought about these things when it was already too late. Instead, I walked straight inside, my eyes drawn immediately to the strawberries. They were set out on a big display which was being guarded and I'm certain that's the right word, by two staff members while a third man handed out punnets to the waiting shoppers. As soon as one person took a pack, another walked up, then another, then another. The staff could barely dish them out fast enough. I wasn't complaining. The sooner I got to the front of the queue, the sooner I could get home and stop my flatmates from tearing each other's faces off. As I waited... I notice a middle-aged businessman sitting on the floor, eating greedily from his own punnet of strawberries, the juice running wildly down his chin and across his shirt. I didn't even have time to properly register how peculiar the scene was before a punnet of strawberries was thrust into my hand. I'd reached the front of the queue without even realising. Ah, oh, cheers. Can I get a couple more of those? The staff member laughed sourly. Ha! <laughs> Not a chance, mate. One pack per shopper. It's the only way we're keeping things under control here. Out of the corner of my eye I saw the businessman getting up, discarding his empty punnet. More, I half heard him grunting. Jesus, we need riot control for fruit now, I joked. What's the world coming to, eh? The man didn't laugh, and it was clear he wasn't going to give me any more strawberries. He was watching the businessman. Perhaps you need a sideline and bibs, I joked again, pointing to the businessman's grossly stained shirt and wondering immediately why I bothered. Then the person behind me lost patience, shoving me mindlessly out of the way. He went to grab a punnet, but the staff member cut him off. At the same moment, the businessman made a lunge for some more strawberries. One of the guards held him back. Oi, back of the queue, mate. I decided it was time to retreat to the checkout, hoping Susie would accept just the one punnet without biting my head off. Six ninety-nine, mate. It wasn't the most I'd ever paid for fruit, but it still took me aback for a moment. So you're not giving them away today then? The checkout boy looked at me cloudily. You want to leave it? I shook my head. Better not. My sister'd kill me. Six ninety-nine then, the boy repeated. I was beginning to think that everyone had suffered a humour bypass that day, but the only thing that stopped me from cracking another poor joke was the fighting that suddenly broke out. I heard the shouting first and looked up. One of the shoppers was trying to coerce the staff member into giving him more strawberries. Someone behind him started pushing, accidentally knocking down the nearest guard. Then I saw the businessman lunge out of nowhere and with a brainless grunt, smash a frozen joint of beef down onto the other guard's head. The man fell to the floor with blood pouring over his face. The other guard clambered quickly to his feet, but he was no match for the piled throng. The remaining staff member got out of the way as quickly as he could, and then, in a second, it was pure mayhem. A violent free-for-all as shoppers beat down other shoppers in a frantic race to get at the strawberries. Oh shit, the checkout boy whispered clearly ready to make a break for it himself. I decided to follow his instinct and got the hell out of there. It was only when I got into the car that I'd realised I'd taken the strawberries with me. I figured I must have grabbed them automatically when the trouble started. No matter. The supermarket staff had bigger things to worry about than one missing pack of strawberries, and I wasn't about to take them back when they were potentially the only thing between me and Susie's wrath. I pulled into the driveway at home with a clear feeling that something was wrong. Susie and Chrissie arguing was unnatural enough, and the scene at the supermarket had been downright frightening. But as I got out of the car, I knew there was something else bothering me. Then it struck me. It was the garden. I couldn't hear anything coming from the garden. No arguing, no banter, not even any sullen chatter. To make things worse, I remembered half noticing something out of place as I'd driven past. I ran to the gate and, sure enough, the table was lying on its side. The wine bottle and glasses were shattered over the patio, and neither Susie nor Chrissie were anywhere to be seen. I rushed inside, where everything looked normal. I still couldn't hear Susie or Chrissie, but at least there were no more signs of damage. No indication that someone had broken in. Then I heard Susie right behind me. Did you get them? What? I asked, turning round. The strawberries. Did you get them? I wasn't much liking the flat tone of Susie's voice. Where's Chrissie? I asked. She looked around the room for a moment, as if she'd forgotten all about her girlfriend. Oh, she's having a lie down. For reasons I didn't want to think too hard about, I decided to check on Chrissy for myself. What happened? Is she alright? I asked, making my way towards their room as casually as I could. Susie followed close behind. She fell over in the garden. We had a little bit of a squabble, that's all. She fell over on the table, hurt her arm a bit. That's all. She's fine. Can I see her? Susie stared at me emotionlessly for a moment. I wondered what she was going to say. She had every right to tell me to mind my own business, but I had a feeling I wasn't going to accept that answer today. Then her face cracked in a bemused grin. If you must. I went into their room. Susie following every step of the way, and saw Chrissy lying on the bed, quite still. As I got closer, I was almost surprised to find that she was merely asleep. There was a bruise on her forehead, and her arm was positioned carefully across her chest, but she appeared fine. The bizarre sense of relief made me laugh, just for a moment. Then I noticed Susie looking me up and down. I knew straight away what she was doing. I haven't got the strawberries, I told her. Not. Why not? Where are they? Just listen a minute, I began, trying to sound reasonable as I led her out of the bedroom. I know this will sound crazy, but maybe you shouldn't have any more strawberries. There were all these people in the supermarket queuing up and they were just... Shit, they were out of their heads, fighting... I don't know what was going on. It was like that old woman you told us about, but deranged. I paused for a moment, not knowing how to go on, so I just said it. I think there might be something wrong with the strawberries. Susie looked at me seriously for a moment, her eyes widening, then, Oh, fuck off. That wasn't quite the reaction I wanted. I mean it. You and Chrissy, you both freaked out after you started eating them. There's nothing wrong with the strawberries, Susie shrieked. They're just too yummy. I want more. Where are they? Where did you put them? Susie started tearing at my clothes as if I'd hidden the strawberries in one of my pockets. I grabbed her arms. Stop it. Look at what you're doing. She struggled free. What am I doing? What are you doing? You just want them all for yourself. That's what you're doing. I put my hands on her shoulders, trying to calm her down. Why don't you have a lie down? Sleep for a bit. See how you feel later. She put a hand on my arm. Lie down, eh? Is that what you want? Yeah. She leaned closer. You want to lie with me? What? Don't pretend you haven't thought about it. With me and Chrissy. Oh, we've thought about it. All the time. I was starting to feel sick. Susie, stop it. No, let's start it. Go on, just get the strawberries. We don't even have to tell Chrissy. We can sit and eat them together. And then... Forbidden fruit, eh? How about it? I pushed her away. Stop! Listen to yourself! And then she turned. Suddenly I felt a melee of hands beating me, pushing me against the wall, tearing at my hair. Susie screamed at me. Determined to tear me limb from limb to find those damn strawberries. As I sank to the ground I wondered if there was any limit she wouldn't succumb to in her current state. Needless to say, Susie didn't kill me, although it felt like she was getting close for a minute or two. I eventually managed to overpower her and get her into my room. She's lying there now, in my bed, peaceful once again. If I had any doubts about there being something in the strawberries, they're gone now. It's been all over the news. People going crazy, trashing supermarkets, even killing each other all over a tiny fruit. Some reports reckon it wasn't just strawberries either, but by the time they work out which foods are affected, it'll be too late. What are they going to do? Make everyone eat out of tins? Destroy all the fruit and veg? Whatever happens, things aren't going to be the same ever again. Luckily, I seem to be immune. I ate one of the strawberries on my way home from the supermarket. I had to do it. I had to know what the fuss was all about. And it's true. It wasn't just the best strawberry I'd ever had. It was just about the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. But it didn't make me crazy. And I never really thought it would. But I had to know. It's too bad Chrissy and Susie weren't immune but I couldn't bear to see them turned into brainless maniacs like the others, not my Chrissy and Susie. So I went into Chrissy's room a little while ago and held a pillow over her face until she was still and peaceful again. That's the way I want to remember her. I didn't have to do anything for Susie. She was already dead. She didn't end up surviving our fight in the hallway. It's a shame she had to go that way, But she really left me no choice. I'll go to the hospital soon. They can run some tests on me and find out why this terrible thing isn't affecting me. Maybe I can even help them develop a vaccine. But first, I'll have another strawberry.
5: Justin Cawthorn's Strawberries, as read by Dan Raybarts, Dan Raybarts is a writer of fantasy novels and speculative fiction, sometimes narrator of podcasts, including stories for the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa, occasional sailor of sailing things, and father of two wee miracles in the little house on a hill under the southern sun. In 2014, he received the Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best New Talent, Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, the horror anthology he co-created with Lee Murray also won the SJV for Best Collected Work and the Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work. His short stories have appeared in venues such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Aureolis Magazine, Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight Magazine, and on the Parsec Award-winning steampunk podcast, Tales from the Archives, among many others. And Children of the Night, that was eight poems and ten flash stories by my count. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast, or wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Celebrating Halloween from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy will play us out tonight. And as always, join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
3: If you've enjoyed this show and any of the others in the District of Wonders, please think about taking out a monthly subscription over on Patreon. Any little amount helps just to keep the stories coming and the shows rolling on. We want to bring out the best stories out there and deliver them to you free, but we certainly need some help and support. Please think about popping over to Patreon. A little as 2 99 a month would be such a great donation. Just want to say thank you so much for all your support over the years.